0: You're listening to the Jewish Truth Bomb with Lenny Goldberg. Hey, this is Lenny Goldberg, and thank you for joining me today. This Pesach Shabbat, we read Pasha Kitavo. and the very beginning of the Pasha, the pasuk discusses the commandment of Bikurim. And what are Bikurim? Well, the mitzvah requires that the first fruits of each year they be brought to the Beit Hamikdash, to the Holy Temple, and these Bikurim they consist. From the seven special species wheat, barley, grapes, figs, olives, dates, and pomegranates. They're species that are identified very much with the land of Israel because the land of Israel is blessed with these fruits and grains. And I want to open up by talking about this mitzvah because it seems like just another nice mitzvah, but we'll see soon it's something very, very deep, something very great. We'll see that it's a mitzvah that encapsulizes all the things I've been saying in all these podcasts on the importance and the centrality of nationalism in Judaism. So how does this mitzvah of Bikurim have anything to do with nationalism? Well, let's look at the verse. And it shall be that when you come to the land that God your Lord is giving you as a heritage and you occupy it and you settle it, you shall take the first of every fruit of the ground produced by the land that God your Lord is giving you. And you place it in a basket and you go to the Beit HaMikdash, etc., etc., like we already said. So notice right off the bat the wording here. You come to the land that God gave you as a heritage to occupy it. In Hebrew, and you settle it. There we go again, after you conquer it and you settle it. And because the verse says, that the Lord has given you a heritage, occupying it and settling in it, we learn from here that the mitzvah of Bikurim only takes effect after you conquer the land. It's not a mitzvah that you can observe just being here in the land under British or Turks. No, you have to conquer it. You have to distribute the portions to the tribes. That's why the verse is nahalah, You got to give everybody a Nahala, a portion in the land. And then you can observe the mitzvah of Bikurim, of bringing those first fruits to the temple. Now, why is that? Why do you have to wait until you conquer the land? Why is it different than the law of HaFashat Challah, Another mitzvah you can only do in the land, where if you're making bread, you have to set aside a portion of the dough, but you have a mitzvah of HaFashat Challah without having to conquer the land and settle in it. Well, before answering that, let's look at other laws of Bikurim. What else do you have to do after you take your first fruits? You go to the temple, and then you make an affirmation. You make a declaration. You go before the priest officiating at that time, and you say to him, today... I am affirming to God that I have come to the land that God swore to our fathers to give us. And Rashi says you have to say it in a loud voice with Lashon Kodish, and you have to say it in Hebrew. And then we make this long declaration, which is outlined in our Pasha, where we give, in a nutshell, the history of the Jewish people, how we got into Egypt, about the Exodus, how Hashem brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. These are all verses at the very beginning of the Pasha. It's part of the process of bringing the Bikurim. And I'll just bring the very end of the declaration that he has to say at the temple. He says, God brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand and an outstretched arm with great miracles. And he brought us to this area, giving us this land flowing with milk and honey. And I am now bringing the first fruits of the land that God has given me. And notice in this declaration, we use the word we. We were in Egypt. We were taken out. Not I, but we. We speak in the collective. And we're telling here our story. It's our story. It's not a narrative. You know, if there ever was an overused word, I think it's the word narrative. I use it too. I admit it. But this story we're telling here about our history, it's not a narrative. This is it. It's our story. And it's one story. And there's no other narrative to it. So there's something very, let's call it Zionistic about this mitzvah. You got to say it in Hebrew. You got to say it in a loud, proud voice. We go through the history of Am Yisrael, how we went out to Egypt, and how we got into Israel in the first place. It's not a private declaration, you see. It's a very national one, especially when you compare it to the very next mitzvah in our parasha, all about removing the tithes, Trumot wrote. There too, when you take tithes from your grain, you also have to make a declaration before Hashem. But this doesn't have to be in Hebrew. It could be in any language. And what do you say? I have removed all the sacred portions from my house. I have given the appropriate ones to the Levite and to the orphan and to the widow, following the commandments you have prescribed to us. I have not violated your commandments, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's a very private declaration when you're talking about Tzumotu Masroth. It's in Leshon Yachid. It's I, not we. I separated the tithes. You're not talking about Am Israel. You're not giving the history. You're not talking about Kibush Aretz. It's a personal statement declaring that I have removed the sacred portion from my house and I took the tithes from my grain. It's totally different from the declaration in Bikurim, which is a national one. You're expressing how Kodesh Boruch took us out of Egypt, how we were enslaved to Paro, how Kodesh Boruch with all his might, took us out of there with great miracles. And then you say that this fruit is a culmination of that historical process. What greater proof of it that it's our land when we bring the produce of that land. This fruit I'm bringing here, it's a symbol of Hashem's godless, of Hashem's omnipotence. And that is why the mitzvah of Bikurim, you observe it after kibush, after conquering the land, after settling the land. The land is ours now, Hashem gave it to us, and I'm happy to show my appreciation by bringing those fruits to the temple and say this declaration in Hebrew, which is the language of the nation, not in French, not in English, in Lashon HaKodesh, in Hebrew, because we are one people. We don't want three different ways of saying it. We say it one way. Everybody says it in Hebrew. Am And that's one of the things that characterize Am Yisrael. There's Am, there's Torah, there's Eretz, and there's Lashon. The holy language is one of those components that characterize Am Yisrael. As we say on the holidays, you elevated us from all the languages. And you say it in a loud, proud voice so everybody can hear you. And why is that? Because it's a matter of Kiddush Hashem. Kiddush Hashem, the sanctification of God's name, you do in public. You say it loud, you say it proud, say it in Hebrew. It's not a personal matter like it is for tithing. And therefore the declaration we say for tithes is something very private. But when it comes to the Bikurim, it's something national and holy. There's a commentary that the mitzvah Bikurim It's a tikkun for chetamiraglim. It's a correction for the sin of the spies. Because what did the spies do? They took the fruits from the land of Israel, went to the Jewish people and said, hey, we can't conquer the land. Look at these fruits. Giants live here. We can't conquer them. And the Bikurim is the opposite. We conquer the land and we take those fruits and we say, look, we did it. So the mitzvah of Bikurim we see, it really symbolizes the matter of mamlachtiut of Jewish sovereignty, of conquest of the land, not just living in the land, but conquering it. You know, there's a lot of Jews, especially from the Haredi community, who know that Eretz Yisrael is holy and they want to be in Eretz Yisrael for that. They would know well the Kedushah of Eretz Yisrael. But if you ask him, why is Eretz Yisrael holier than Chutz Laaretz? Or why is it better to live in the land of Israel than to live outside the land? They'll say, well, in the land of Israel, you got more mitzvahs. You got Shemitah, and you got Challah, and you got Truma, and you got Bikurim. You don't have that in Chutz Laret, so you can do more mitzvahs in Eretz Israel. Now, that's true, but what are they missing out on? They're missing out on the concept of Bikurim, on the idea of it. The point of conquering the land. That's the ultimate reason Hashem wants us to be here, to do national Kiddush Hashem, to conquer the land, to settle in it, impose Jewish sovereignty on the land. That's the big, big mitzvah of being in the land of Israel. It's the matter of Mamlachtiut and Lumiut, statehood. The importance of having a Jewish state from a Torah point of view, not just for Mitzvahs, Klalot, Baritz. Yet, so many very frum Jews are missing out on this concept. And so, even though we have a Kibbutz Galuyot and in gathering of the exiles and a Jewish state, and we've seen miraculous victories, a lot of Jews still don't get it. They don't grasp the significance that we've conquered the land. We're living in the land. And we're actualizing the prophecies of the Bible. Now, the reason why many religious Jews in the Haredi community especially don't embrace the state of Israel is because they look at the government. They look at the founders of the state and they see the most secular, liberal, socialists, even not Jews who established the state. And they see the state it is today, very anti-Jewish. I'm not talking about a couple of Knesset members. I'm talking about the roots of the country, The infrastructure, the media, the judiciary, the higher ranks in the army, what you see going now in the judicial debate, we see that they're not just leftists. These people are the state of Israel. They're the functionaries of power. They close down airports. So a lot of these, let's call them anti-Zionist Jews, ultra-Orthodox, see all this and they say, eh, there's nothing holy about the state. Look at it. Look at its founders. And so because they dislike the government, they dislike the entire state. But the thing is, you have to separate between state and government. What do I mean? Let's say we're back in the first temple period and you have King Ahab walking around. So would you say that the state isn't holy? Would you say that the state of Israel is no good? They would just say, we got a bad king. We got to exchange him. Well, let's say Manasseh was the king, the king of Yehuda. Terrible king, wicked. That means the state of Israel is no good. No, Menashe is no good. Get rid of him. Put in somebody new. And it's the strangest thing. Because on the one hand, the Haredi community, because they don't like the government or the founders or the whole conception of secular Zionism, they're against it from the beginning. So they're against the entire state. They're not interested in sovereignty. They're not interested in the wars, the conquest. If the government's no good, the state's no good. On the other hand, you have the Zionists, many of them who say, because it's a Kirish Hashem and the state is a wonderful thing. After 2000 years of not having one, they go the other way. They take it to the other extreme. And because the state is great, that means the government is automatically wonderful because it's a Jewish government. You can't go against the Jewish government. And so you have all these machlochits between the different hashkafas, the Zionists, the anti-Zionists, amongst the Zionists. You have all these different views regarding the state, regarding the government. But this is something going on between religious Jews. How do you view the state? How do you view the government? Is it the same thing? Well, Rabbi Kahana always distinguished between state and government. He suffered a lot from the government. He was arrested, administered detention. He was arrested constantly. But that doesn't mean he opposed the state of Israel. He said, Halel, on Yom Yerushalayim, and Independence Day, he said, Halel with a blessing, because we still want a state. That doesn't mean the government is automatically wonderful, but the state is a wonderful thing. So I don't know why it's difficult for religious Jews to grasp the difference between that. In America, it doesn't seem like a big deal. It makes sense. You can love America. You love the state, but you hate Biden or you hate Obama. You hate the government, but you love the state. What do you mean you love the state? You love the country. You love what it stands for. The founding fathers, liberty, the history, all that America stands for. Baseball, apple pie, Chevrolet. You love that. But you hate the government. You want to change it. There it's no problem, right? But in Israel... Somehow it doesn't work that way. You either hate the government and the state or you love them both without distinguishing between them. But getting back to our idea that Bikurim, this mitzvah in Pashat Kitavo, represents the importance of conquering the land, not just living in the land and settling in it, but conquering it and applying Jewish sovereignty over it. That's the difference between Bikurim and Shumoto Masroth, which is a more private kind of mitzvah. Pasha Kitavo is also the pasha of the Tochacha, the pasha of the rebuke, where Kodesh Boruchu lays down some heavy curses upon us if we don't do the right thing, and it's like totally disproportionate because it says that if we do the right thing, we'll get a whole bunch of blessings, and if we don't do the right thing, boom, we see rapid fire curses one after another, absolutely brutal and scary. They're so scary that when the Balkoray reads this part of the pasha, whether he's Ashkenazi, Sephardi, Yemenite. He races through those verses of curses, speeding through it in a low voice, because we don't want to even hear it. And what always comes to my mind when I see the few blessings versus the multitude of curses, why is the Torah so pessimistic? Why is it so negative? There are some yeshivas whose entire slogan is, Yetov, yeah, think good, and it'll be good, positive thinking. Nachshov Tov, Yetov. But that doesn't seem to be the approach of our Torah here. It's got a lot more negatives than positives. There's a lot more curses than blessings. So Benjamin Kahane used to say like this, why are there so few blessings and so many curses? Well, when it comes to blessings, you don't have to elaborate too much. Every person could think for himself what it is to be blessed. For one person, it's you know, sitting under a tree, drinking a pina colada, learning Torah. Everyone is able to describe for himself and his mind what blessing is. But when it comes to curses, it's the very opposite. When things are going bad, especially when it comes to the Jewish people, I'm not talking about personal bad. I'm talking about national problems. People tend to say, it's not going to get any worse than this. I mean, this is as bad as it's going to get, right? It can't get worse than this. So what's happening in the Toch in our pasha, is Hashem is saying, you think that was bad? You haven't seen nothing yet. And so you have these rapid fire curses, one after another, to drum it into your head how bad it can get. And that is scary. But let's face it, we are in a scary situation, whether in Israel or outside of Israel. Open your eyes. In both situations, we're seeing on a powder keg. Here in Israel, there's the government of Israel that has no real solution to the problem of Arab terror. They try to just manage the enemy and the enemy is getting less and less manageable. They're losing control. And that makes things very scary and dangerous. And the Arab chutzpah is at an all-time high. And in the USA, if you think about it, the way the Democrats conduct themselves, how they've weaponized the justice system, how they're forcing their woke culture on the citizens and leaving the borders open. It really seems there is no other way for the Republicans to gain control without some kind of civil war. It seems almost inevitable. And the Jew, somehow, he's going to be right in the middle. So the Pasha is reminding us, if you think it's bad now, you ain't seen nothing yet. And so I'm not here to scare you, but the Torah is scaring you. Look at Pasha Kitavo, look at those curses. And so a Jew isn't supposed to be an ostrich and put his head in the sand. He has to have his eyes wide open and see the reality of it. The Torah doesn't pull punches here. It's telling us what's going to happen if we don't go in the way of Hashem. Now, when we go down the list of curses and they get worse and worse, one of the final curses is Loya Manoach, Lakhafra You won't find a resting place for your feet. You'll have no rest. You'll be wandering and going from place to place. Loyamanwach. And the sages come and say that this verse, you will not find a resting place in the exile, even though it's a curse, it's actually a blessing in disguise. And this is how they explain it. See, regarding the dove in Noah's Ark, we also see the same expression as we have in our verse here. He couldn't find the resting place for his feet. Lo matzah manuach Same term. They bring the story of the dove in Noah's Ark when there was a flood, we also had that term that Noah sent the dove, the Yonah, and because the Yonah didn't have a Manoach, the Kafraglav, he didn't have a resting place, he returned to the ark. And when did he not return to the ark? Shiesh lo Manoach. When he had a resting place, he didn't come back to the ark. And the sages teach us that that's the Jewish people in the exile. The ark is a parable here to the land of Israel. As long as the Jewish people have a Manoach, have a resting place for their feet, they're not going to come back to the ark, just like the dove. That's what the Midrash says. <speaking in Hebrew> if they found a resting place for their feet, they would never come back to the land of Israel. When do they come to Israel? la <speaking in Hebrew> They come when there is no resting place. That's what makes them come to Israel. And that's why the Midrash says that this curse of not having a resting place for our feet, Sholoya Manoach, it's actually a blessing because it's the only way the Jew's going to return to Israel. And that, my friends, is an ironclad law of Judaism. That as long as the Jew has a little branch out there, he's got his little falafel store or some kosher pizza parlor to dine in, whatever he's got, he's got his parnasa, he's got his resting place in the exile. He's not coming back. He won't go to Eretz Israel. The only time he'll come, Manoch, when he's got no resting place. When the Jew hatred is so severe, he realizes this isn't his place. He doesn't have a branch to hang anymore. That's when he'll come to the land of Israel. Like the Yonah came to the Teva when he didn't have a place to sit anymore. So the sages knew back then what makes the Jew come to Israel. It's only when he has no choice. And that's why today, if you go to Israel, you see a lot more French people than you used to see. You hear a lot of French on the train, on the buses. There's settlements near me like Kochav Yaakov and Psagot. A lot of French Jews have come to Israel and it's a really good quality aliyah. But why have they come? Because anti-Semitism in France, it's getting unbearable. And that's why you see French Jews come in Israel. They feel the danger. Their exile is no longer safe. And that's why also when Rabbi Kahana Came onto our campus in the United States and tried to convince us to make Aliyah, he didn't really speak of the wonderful things about Eretz Israel, the mitzvah to live in Eretz Israel. He spoke instead of how it can happen in the United States, just like it happened in Germany. And nobody thought it could happen in Germany, where the Jew had it so good. That was the last place you think it could happen, but it happened. And so the rabbi on campus would give the historical parallels. We describe the socioeconomic political situation, how, yeah, it can happen in America. Under the surface, there's a lot of Jew hatred. And though America was the greatest exile the Jew has ever seen, that which once was is not necessarily that which will be. And so Jew, get out before it's too late. That's how he tried to motivate us. He tried to plant the seeds that when that wave of anti-Semitism comes, we'll be more keen to it, we'll, we'll be more sensitive to it with the hope that we'll go back to the Teva, to the Ark, to the land of Israel, only by scaring us out of the exile. Moving on to something else. We're in the month of Elul. Rosh Hashanah is near. And it's a time for self-introspection. We look inside ourselves to see if we've grown, if we've changed for the better. It's that time of year where the shofar sounds to remind us to do tshuv already, because we're not going to live forever. I want to read a little bit of an article that Rabbi Kahana wrote on the month of Elul, what's Elul all about? What's Rosh Hashanah all about? What is Judaism all about? And this is something that you touched in the Shema of every Jew, and I'm going through the part of it. Again, the article is called Elul. It was written on September 2nd, 1977. It reads like this. The Jewish calendar is full of notations and red letter days that are meant to be reminders that time is passing. The sands of life have run out just a little bit more. The beard is a little grayer. The limbs just a touch heavier. Time. The Jewish calendar is a watchman of time. A ram's horn that blows not once a year, but every time that a new cycle begins. Every week is marked by a Shabbat that notes not only the end of the week past, but the beginning of a new one. It is both a reminder of seven full days past out of our life. So soon, so soon, as well as the opportunity to make the next period fuller, more meaningful, a reason for being. And every month is marked by a Rosh Chodesh, the beginning of yet another lunar cycle. The wheel of heaven has revolved yet another 30 days. So soon, so soon, and we are that much older. The Lord now gives us another month to prove that we are also that much wiser. And every year has its Rosh Hashanah, that peculiarly Jewish day in which there are no parties and drinking and abandonment of restraint, in which there is no hilarious laughter and noise that is a frantic and frenetic attempt to convince all and oneself that he is happy. There's no frantic clutching at pleasure before it escapes. And worse, before I pass on, too soon, too soon. No, no, no. There is Rosh Hashanah, the time post. Another year gone by. Already? So soon? Soon. And it is a time to see what the gray hairs and the added wrinkles and the slower reflexes have taught us. Rosh Hashanah is one step closer to the gateway out of this world and into the next one. It is a time to rehearse the speech that we will make all of us someday before the supremest of courts as we attempt to explain the meaning of our lives below. Anyway, that's just the beginning of a very long and beautiful article called Elul. If someone out there is interested, I'll try to get you the whole thing. But yeah, Rosh Hashanah is coming. And we Jews don't stand in the middle of Manhattan waiting for the ball to drop and singing old Land Zime. What we do in our New Year's is take an assessment of what kind of life am I living and can I live it better and with more meaning? Am I better than I was last year? Because after all, as the rabbi says here, time's running out. You're not going to live forever. Okay, that's it for me. Don't forget to tune into my Bible classes, Lenny Goldberg's Bible classes. You can Google that to hear an authentic study of the Bible with Jewish sources. Let's get back to the basics. Right before Rosh Hashanah, let's do a national kind of tshuva and start learning the Jewish Bible. Let's get acquainted with authentic Jewish heroes. And I'll be back next week for more Same Time, Same Station.